You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, June 22nd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison from Washington. But first, Jack Farley with today's stories. Jack? Thanks, Ash. Here in New York today, we're entering phase two of the reopening, a major milestone for a city that for so long was the global epicenter of the pandemic. But while New York can ease a sigh of relief, Many states around the country face new hardship as the coronavirus reasserts its grip on much of the nation. RT.Live has been tracking r naught, that critical statistic demonstrating the rate of the virus's growth. And we can see that 23 of the 50 states have an r naught above 1, meaning that the virus will spread more quickly. Below 1, the virus will stop spreading over time. I know that RAL is focusing on that statistic a lot. The states with an r naught higher than 1 are concentrated in the South and in the West, while Northeast states are under 1 and most Midwest states are also under 1. Because of the speed at which the virus is spreading, the U.S. reported over 36,000 new cases just yesterday. But the scale of the spread goes beyond just the U.S. Brazil reported over 54,000 new cases yesterday, and the World Health Organization reported just last night that there were more than 183,000 new cases in the prior 24 hours. That's the largest single-day increase in coronavirus cases that we've ever seen since the outbreak. Even countries with strict containment measures are having a hard time eradicating the virus completely. In Germany, authorities have confirmed over 1,300 new cases among workers at the Taunus pork processing plant in Rhine-Westphalia, Germany. Presently, Germany's infection rate is 2.7, the highest it's been since early March. Meanwhile, India's hospitals are struggling to cope with the dramatic rise in cases, and South Korea continues to battle its second wave. Now, whether we're in a second wave or if we're in a first wave that never ended, that's just semantics, as Ed pointed out in Credit Write-Downs today. What matters is that the seemingly inexorable spread of the virus is contradicting in real time the equity markets globally, which are banking on a V-shaped recovery. So the question going forward is, how will governments and companies, doctors and journalists, how will everyone reconcile these two competing narratives? And are equity investors so committed to a V-shaped recovery that they're willing to accept the heavy, heavy costs? And lastly, CLOs own about 60% of all leveraged loans in the U.S., but they find themselves continually being outmaneuvered by activist credit funds that are nimble and punch well above their weight. You see, CLOs are prohibited from buying risky securities, so in bankruptcies, they're often restricted from taking another bite at the apple. The problem? These bankruptcy scenarios are often the most lucrative, so activist hedge funds like Oaktree and Elliott Management can reap windfall profits investing in newfound layers of the capital stack unavailable to their CLO competitors. And CLOs stumble over themselves as their competitors laugh all the way to the bank. Dan Zwirn and Ed just had an amazing conversation about CLOs, where they talk about this dynamic as well as the rise of CovLite loans, the asset liability mismatch, and the moral hazard of securitization. It's a great conversation. And if you're interested in the deterioration of credit quality and how to protect yourself as an investor, you're really going to like it. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Ed. Welcome to you, actually. And uh, what's the, the red device that you have there in the, uh, the screen at the bottom? That's my microphone. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's looking good. Thanks, Ed. So, uh, Ed, what are you looking at? I am looking at, uh, we, we talked, I guess, about a week ago about the transition from the reopening rally to a more stasis kind of period where we're awaiting more information. And really, the information that we're awaiting, uh, we're starting to get it now, which is about uh, what does the reopening look like both from a COVID perspective and from an economic perspective. Now that we have had this initial pop in May and the beginning of June with regard to the economic data. And I think that we're now starting to see the downside risks. And I definitely want to go through what I see to be those risks uh, later on in the broadcast, both on an economic basis and potentially on a market basis. Yeah, exactly to your point, Ed. U.S. equity markets up last week, uh, NASDAQ up about 3.7%, S&P up nearly 2% at 1.9%. You know, this comes on positive data, retail sales up 18% uh, in May, the largest increase on record, 11 straight weeks of improvement in the labor markets as measured by declining jobless claims. Yeah, so uh, the the view that I'm looking at is uh, very similar to what Boston of Fed President Eric Rosengren has mentioned. And I'm actually looking for the specific quote that he made uh, in comments that he made. And here's what I have him saying. He said, a quote, if there are significant flare-ups in states that have aggressively reopened, the reduction in social distancing that contributes to stronger economic performance in such states may now translate to more depressed economic activity and increased public health issues in those states in the future. And so what he's pointing out is the numbers that you were mentioning, which is what has caused the reopening rally, which is something that we could have anticipated, which I talked about in April anticipating, um, those are the same numbers that are gonna cause the COVID-19 infection rates to increase over the near term now and as a result are going to cause a, a chill in the economic environment going forward. And I think Rosengren also said that you should expect a very accommodative monetary policy as a result. And I think this is what's happening behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, policymakers are seeing this play out. They understand that the United States reopened, and in some cases they reopened too quickly, COVID-19 cases are increasing, and as a result, it really means that they're going to uh, keep stepping on the gas for a longer period of time than you might have anticipated earlier. Yeah, you know, you uh, actually sent these comments to me uh, early this morning, and I, I was reading through. The thing that struck me was, uh, you know, Rosengren points to uh, a Fed forecast that is a 6.5% decline in real GDP for 2020 with an unemployment rate of 9.3%. And he said, quote, Unfortunately, I believe even this dire outlook may be too optimistic. Uh, and he said the expected unemployment rate may still be in the double digits by the end of this year. Yeah, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, the first thing you have to think about is you have to think about 
the pandemic. And, you know, I was looking at some of the things that I was tweeting out earlier that I saw that I thought were pretty interesting with regard to that. One is, is from Arizona Central, the account there, they're a um, Central Arizona news account. And they were saying that Arizona has hit a new COVID-19 hospitalization uh, records as, it, as the cases continue to spike ahead of the president's visit. They said as of Sunday, 82 percent of current inpatient beds and 84% of ICU beds were in use for COVID-19 and other patients. Then also amid the surge in Florida COVID-19 cases, Florida Governor DeSantis, uh, he changed his guidelines for ICU reporting because he doesn't want uh, hospitals to report the number of patients in ICU beds. He only wants hospitals to report the number of patients uh, in ICU beds who require an, an, a, a, quote, intensive la uh, uh, level of care. So, you know, that's a very semantical argument. I think that really what it boils down to is, is, is that Florida is under the gun and he's trying to uh, rejigger their statistics to make it look less bad. But the reality is that multiple Florida hospitals are running out of ICU beds as the cases uh, of coronavirus spike. So, this is exactly what people have uh, warned about reopening too quickly. And the question is, is A, what does it mean in terms of, uh, you know, the hospitalization rates over time? What does it mean in terms of death rates over time? And then what does it mean in terms of consumption patterns, uh, fear, lockdowns and things of that nature? We're still in the early innings of this, but I believe by September, October, that's the time frame that I've been using for some time now, we're going to see the answer. Yeah. One of the things you've been so eloquent about, Ed, is pointing out the connection between that data and economic data. So as you look forward to that time period, uh, what are your expectations? What are you going to be looking for to determine which thesis is coming true? Yeah, so the first thing that I'm looking for is the bond market. You know, I think the equity market is geared to the upside and the bond market is geared to mitigating downside risk. And so the bond market really looks at this uh, with downside risk protection first. What's interesting is if you look at the bond market, treasuries, take a look at the two-year treasury, for example, and you can look at treasuries spiking up in terms of the two-year rate up to early June and then coming off of that level uh, towards this period of time. What that shows you actually is that people were optimistic about the economy. That means that over the two-year period uh, that they saw going forward, there was a greater chance that the Fed was going to hike interest rates or that the passive, uh, path of interest rates would be less accommodated. That's what the increase tells you. The same thing goes for the 10-year rate as well. If you look at the 10-year chart, it's exactly the same chart. But now what's interesting is if you look at the twos and the tens, you look at them in terms of the 210 spread, what you saw was what would be called a bull steepener up through that June 5th uh, period, turning into a bear flattener. And so with that, the, the bull steepener is, is when uh, you have uh, a bullish environment for treasuries, uh, um, or, or actually, sorry, it's a bear steepener, uh, that's when it's a, a bearish environment for treasuries and the difference between the two and the 10 is increasing. Um, and then moving to a bull flattener is, is when the treasury rates are all coming down. So that's treasury rates going down means the price is going up, but the difference between them is decreasing. 
so what that means is is that you went from a wildly optimistic scenario that is 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 uh, you know bears for treasuries because the economy is doing really well ten years going up even more than two years going to a a, a bear flattener where the ten year is diving more than the two year and what we've seen is is, is we've seen the two ten spread go from sixty nine basis points to fifty one basis points in that period of time so. That's the first thing that I'm looking for is to see if that spread continues to flatten. And if it does, it's a sign that the, the, the bond market thinks that the economy uh, going forward is not as robust as we thought it was when the reopening first uh, started. You know, and Ed, for some additional context for people who don't follow the bond market at the professional level in the way that you do, people who may be um, more interested in following U.S. equities, explain what changes rates at the front end of the curve and then as you get later in the curve to the 10-year point and why that's such a critical uh, point for someone who might not have that experience. Yeah, so the front of the curve basically is closer to the time period of overnight rates, which the Fed controls. So that means that those rates are much more variable with uh, what's going to happen in the near future. The 10-year rate is really a, uh, a chain of short-term rates. You can think of it as uh, a, a series of overnight rates over that 10-year period. And so you add on a risk premium for uh, you know holding up your money for a longer period of time, and what you get is a uh, a chain of events plus the risk premium. That's how most people think of a ten-year rate. And so, ultimately, the ten-year fluctuates more aggressively uh, based upon economic outcomes over the longer period of time. So that's that's really how you can think of that. And so. Um, you know, when the economy goes down, you're going to see the 10-year go down more aggressively uh, it, uh, than the than the uh, the short rate until you get the cuts where the the Fed is cutting aggressively, and that's when you're going to see the the front end of the curve go down. That's when you see the the yield curve invert. The yield curve inversion is a sign that the 10-year has gone down so much that they think that actually cuts are going to be really aggressive over the short term. I, I hope that was a good explanation. I, I don't know if that was. Yeah. And so, so the, you know, the 210 spread is simply a measure of the 10-year yield minus the two-year yield. And the, and the steepeners and the flatteners uh, that you're referring to refer to the rates of change in that, in that spread. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if there's a um, it, it, going back to the whole inversion thing, usually the, the curve is upward sloping. And the reason it's upward sloping is because you want to uh, you want to be paid for owning uh, paper for a longer period of time, for locking up your money for a longer period of time. But when the curve inverts, what it says is, is that actually people are thinking that in the the interim period of time between now and and then, the the Fed's going to start cutting, likely in the next two years. And so when the two year is actually above the 10 year, what it really means is, is that the Fed will be cutting because the economic scenario will be getting less uh, positive. Right. And for our non-bond heads in the audience, that has been an excellent predictor on a forward basis of future recessions. If you look back uh, over the decades, that that yield curve inversion has been a key signal uh, that bond markets believe that we are heading toward recession in the U.S. 
That's right. Yeah. So usually when the yield curve inverts for more than a month uh, and it stays inverted for that period of time, it, it signaled a recession in the near term. And, you know, we saw that this uh, this figure happened last year very briefly. Uh, but COVID-19 was uh, such a out of the blue kind of thing. It's hard to say whether or not that was really a prediction in this particular case. But in prior cycles, it has been a prediction. At a minimum, we can say that the bond market should be leading the equity market in terms of thinking and pricing in downside risk. And so when I look at economic signals going forward, I'm looking at what the bond market is saying in terms of what they're pricing in. And what they're pricing in is, is that the COVID-19 cases that we're seeing today, the hospitalization cases that we're going to see today, they are going to have a chill in terms of the economic benefits uh, going forward. And, and the result will be uh, that yields will come down. Yeah. And as day traders crowd into U.S. equity markets, having an understanding of this is so important to understand what the so-called smart money is thinking and doing. Exactly. Uh, you know, so equities are all about the upside, but you can get caught out. And most people think that the bond market is smarter, if you will, than the equity market because it sniffs it out. That They're more concerned about protecting their, their capital, whereas equity investors are more concerned about making outside outsized returns. One thing that I would point to from an economic perspective that I was looking at today was something in the New York uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal about New York and how New Yorkers returning to offices, that they're really not returning to office spaces in the, the measure that you would expect, that yeah. only 10 to 20 percent of New Yorkers are returning and that, you know, the corporate uh, corporate real estate uh, CRE is really getting hit hard and that this is a, a market that we really haven't priced in the risk going forward. Uh, in terms of the market. So that's another one of these sorts of outcomes that we should see going forward. So I think yeah. the Rosengren uh, piece, I think when you look at uh, the twos and tens, that's another thing that I'm looking at. Yeah. I'm also looking at uh, commercial real estate. And the final thing that I would mention in terms of the economy is if all of these things do come to pass, we should see a flow through in terms of currencies, the dollar. So I would definitely think about the Brent Johnson, Len Alden piece that we saw today, which is a great exposition on, you know, what it means to be thinking about the dollar as the world's reserve currency, what that means in terms of uh, flows for emerging markets, how liquidity crises can happen there. There definitely will be a flow through with the dollar if uh, the global economy has another recession. Yeah. You know, I haven't seen that piece yet, but uh, I'm a great fan of Brent Johnson and the dollar milkshake uh, sh uh, shows that he's done on Real Vision have been great because I think they break down and explain ver very much in the way that we were doing earlier uh, this thesis about the dollar um, and why capital has been flowing uh, to the U.S. relatively durably over the last several years. It's a it's a not to miss piece, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. You know, you you mentioned New York City, and obviously we're in phase two of the reopening starting today. And this is one so one of the great questions that that we talk about, which is whether we look at things in relative terms or absolute terms. And uh, so you know, one could say in relative terms, this is definitely improvement. In absolute terms, you know, the idea that like if you told a restaurant owner. Uh, in 2019, hey, I've got great news for you. You're going to be able to open for outdoor dining. 
And they'd say, well, that's great. In addition to the dining room, no, no, we're not going to have people indoors, right? This on a on an absolute basis is, is pretty negative. Uh, offices reopening today, um, but you have to maintain uh, six feet of distance between uh, your colleagues. It's a really challenging thing. This is uh, this is not uh, this is not even uh, in in an absolute sense a, a rosy scenario. Obviously, it represents incremental improvement, uh, but still something uh, to Mr. Rosengren's point uh, that seems quite challenging. Yeah. So I think that going forward, uh, we're now in the phase where we're going to start thinking about uh, you know, is the rosy scenario that the market, the equity market, is painting, is it going to pan out? And the first place that we went, obviously, is going to be with COVID-19. And the second place that we're going to go is in terms of earnings. And those are going to be the things that will drive the markets over this next uh, period of time. And I think that what we're going to see, this is my my view, is, is that we're, we're not going to see the out and out uh, abject uh, crisis situations that we saw in uh, New York in places like Houston or in uh, Tulsa, for that matter. I think really what we're going to see is um, we, we, we know how to deal with the virus a, a bit better. Uh, we are, uh, we, we've taken some of the protocols into place. We're going to see a, a knock-on effect, a rebound. So it's not going to be a total lockdown the way that it was the first time. But we are going to see a hit, and that hit is going to manifest itself in terms of lower earnings. It's going to manifest itself in more unemployment, higher than people anticipate now. And that's going to mean the the market is going to probably uh, look to be overvalued as it is today. Yeah. You know, what, one of the things that we do here on the briefing is we try to look just across asset classes across the world uh, in different ways. And we always look at stories that are positive and stories that are negative. There was an interesting story that caught my eye in the Wall Street Journal this morning um, about market breadth, and this is definitely a positive sign. So last week, 97% um, of S&P stocks traded above their 50-day moving average. This very wide market breadth is seen as a positive technical indicator. Uh, this is the highest level it's been in 10 years. Um, so that is definitely a positive sign. Here's a quote from the article that struck me. History shows that when more than 90% of stocks in the S&P 500 rise above their 50-day moving averages, a rare occurrence, um, you know, that it's followed by a period of gains further down the road. So a positive sign on market breadth, people not just piling into the FANG stocks or the big tech stocks, also catching a bid more broadly across the S&P. Yeah, and the question is, is how long is that going to go on? Uh, when you when you say how you know is it, it's followed by a period of positive uh, returns? Is does that mean through September, October, the time frame that I'm talking about, or is it the beginning of a new bull market? Which is you know what some people would have you believe. That is, is, is that you know we had a very short, sharp recession, but now we're off to the races again for another five, ten year. Uh, upturn. So those are two quite different outcomes. One where it, you get stopped out in September, October versus one in which you get stopped out in uh, five to 10 years down the line. Interestingly, you know, just from a positive perspective, was an article in the New York Times about uh, Japan, unemployment being 2.6%. I saw that David Rosenberg, who I, I'm actually going to speak to tomorrow, and hopefully that interview will uh, air later on this week, 
he was talking about Japan being a model uh, as opposed to something that people should scoff at, that he really thinks that Japan is is going to outperform economically finally after years and years, that they're really at a, at a, a point where, uh, you know, even in a pandemic, they're only at 2.6% unemployment. So he's bullish on Japan. And he thinks that, you know, when the dust settles, that Japan will be in a more positive position than the United States. And I think that that's one conclusion that you could draw in terms of bullishness, relative value plays like that. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting take. I'm really looking. I'm always interested in uh, what uh, David has to say and especially interested on, in that thesis. I'm looking at the chart right now. Uh, unemployment in Japan has been dropping pretty steadily um, for uh, about 10 years now. The, the, the article that he was pointing to points out that, you know, Japan, they have a totally different model where in the United States, we have uh, record unemployment, Great Depression like unemployment. And the reason is, is because uh, people can shed their workers very readily, whereas they can't in places like Japan. Even in Europe, it's more difficult to shed your workers the way that you have in the United States. And, you yeah. know, there are positives and negatives. The positive side, people have pointed out, uh, is, is that if you can fire people quickly, then you can hire them back on quickly. So supposedly, your economy is much more nimble. But what we're seeing in a catastrophic event like we have today, the, the massive unemployment that we have in the United States with the poor social safety net ultimately could leave the United States in a position where, uh, you know, the lingering effects are so massive that it, it takes the economy down o over a longer period of time. Whereas Japan, uh, on the other hand, is, is still at 2.6% unemployment, and that will be positive once we're in the backside of the coronavirus. Yeah, there are always these interesting balancing acts between uh, flexible labor markets on the one hand, and as you point out, at uh, social safety nets on the other, and where the optimal point on that continuum is to fall. Yeah. Uh, so another uh, 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 last aspect that I would point out for this particular broadcast is uh, Europe versus the U.S. I have said that, you know, over the short to medium term and I would consider a September to October time frame, the short to medium term versus when I started talking about this in April is that the Europeans would perhaps outperform. And the reason is, is because uh, they're uh, their protocols for uh, reopening were much more robust than they are in the United States, that the United States would have a relapse that was larger than in Europe. And so far, you know, that's been on the mark in terms of the uh, of the the COVID side. But from the market side, the United States has outperformed. Let's see whether or not both of those uh, sides of the coin actually hold up, because we've had the meatpacking uh, uh, super spreader in Germany, in Gutesloh. I think you probably heard about that. Yeah. And uh, and so that's that's negative for Europe. Uh, but at the same time, we've had super spreader events here in the United States, potentially. Let's see you know, how it shakes out. I think that Europe will get through the pandemic uh, better on the backside of the, of the uh, lockdown released in the United States. And that that's going to be positive for the markets in Europe. But that's really only a short to medium term bounce, whereas Rosenberg is talking about Japan over the longer term. Yeah. And you were very early uh, to talk about the super spreader events on this show. Um, 
it meat packing facilities. You pointed out that it was a perfect storm of cold and close proximity and a series of other um, challenging circumstances. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I was actually surprised to hear that in this uh, one company, you know, 6,000 workers there, 1,300 of them uh, were infected with COVID. I mean, that's 20% of the workers that were infected. That's a massive super spreading event. So even in the midst of uh, what you think is a country that's doing it by the book, you have these kinds of outbreaks. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the 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 final result is the WHO released today saying that we are actually at the worst point in the, the pandemic that we've been in in the entire crisis. A lot of people think we're reopening and it's all good, but really there were more COVID-19 infections yesterday than there has been in any other day in the entire pandemic. Uh, we're talking the United States, we're talking Brazil, we're talking India, we're talking Germany. So this thing isn't over. Uh, the, the most that we should hope for is, is that we've learned uh, about the lockdown, how catastrophic it was, that we've learned how to test, we've learned how to deal with uh, preventing death, and that therefore the outcomes will be less severe. That's my hope, and to a certain degree, my expectation. But I think that there are the 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 market is not priced for some of the downside risks that we have going forward. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's it's all about those tail risks. And, I, you know, I saw a headline cross Bloomberg not all that line, long ago. The headline speaks for itself, I think. U.S. preps for tremendous burden of flu, comma, COVID hit at once. Yeah, let's just cross our fingers and uh, hope that uh, we get through this as best as possible. I say uh, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Yeah, hope for a mild flu uh, season and a good vaccine ahead of time. Until tomorrow, thanks for joining us, Ed. Good to talk to you as usual, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.